Jim, Madame Arcana at the Zodiac restaurant. You don't pay that dinner tab. We're going to repo your birthday. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And this time we are coming to you with uh, our penultimate season two episode. Yeah. Uh, season two, episode 20, Where's Houston? Or perhaps with the question mark, where's Houston? Where's Houston? Um, and this is, so episode 20 is, it is our penultimate episode, but it is their pen penultimate episode. It's the, the right. third to the last episode of the season. But it's the last of the season, second to last of the season two episodes uh, we have left to, to, to watch. Yeah, we're going to finish out our season two of The Rockford Files. And so we have one more episode before we do that. This episode aired before our last episode, Foul on the First Play. So yeah. we are going backwards. <laughs> None of this is particularly interesting um, <laughs> to anyone but ourselves. Uh yeah, this one, so that was just to say that the selection of this one was driven by our, our project to um, complete season two. Yeah. And of the two left, we decided to go with this one. At some, at some point, we just start running out of reasons. Right. And it's just like, these are Rockford files that are left. Let's start doing them. Which, you know, that's what we're here to do. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound like we, oh my God, I can't believe we have to do this episode. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just at some point we get into, we are past the halfway point of the series. So um, every, every episode is a, it's another step on the, uh, another step on the path towards being done with the podcast. Yeah. Another step on the inevitability of the end. The, the eventual heat death of the podcast. Yes. That is still a long time in the future. Enjoy them while you can, listener. Enjoy them while you can. Um, yeah. So this episode, just based on the, uh, Logline is a Rocky episode, which yes. it is a Rocky episode. Um, but we do get kind of all of our friends. We get some, some Dennis and some Beth. Um, in that way, I felt like, oh, we get to see everyone because uh, I think we haven't really done a full cast episode in, in quite a while. Missing only Angel. Which is fine. It would have been a very different episode if Angel had been involved. Uh, I have a theory about that and maybe oh. we'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of uh, seeing all of our friends, this one is directed by Lawrence Doney, who is uh, one of our prolific early season directors. Um, This puts us over the halfway point for watching his episodes, of which we've enjoyed many, including the other season two standouts, Chicken Little is a Little Chicken and The Farnsworth Stratagem. Yes. And speaking of Rocky episodes, this, uh, so Where's Houston, was written by Don Carlos Dunaway, who wrote two episodes and did the teleplay for two others, and they've all been Rocky episodes. So he wrote <laughs> Coulter City Wildcat, which we did re- recent-ish in the last year, uh, and he did the teleplay for the two Gear Jammers episodes. So, okay, you're a Rockford Files writer, right? You, you've, you've ended up writing uh, six episodes, let's say. If only I could be so 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 blessed but yes right okay. who's the character that, that's in all six of your episodes <sighs> that like maybe even gets some of the standout lines in some of these episodes i mean my first impulse is to uh you know go 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 for something slightly more deep cut and be like lieutenant deal yeah go for it <laughs> do deep cut i don't know if that's actually true though um if i was writing uh I probably, I honestly would probably 
have a lot of Dennis. Yeah. I feel like I vibe vibe with Dennis more than in terms of like in terms of writing that character. Yeah. And they would all have some something to do with like Peggy would be involved in all of yes. them. <laughs> There'd always be a touch of Dennis's personal life and how working for the cops is a moral compromise with like <laughs> his ethics and values as a as a human being. I think those would be those would be my themes. Dennis Dennis I think is a good one because it, it, you can, you can take almost any premise for a Rockford Files episode and just be like, all right, how does Jim's behavior here disappoint Dennis? Right, yeah. Right, like that's, <laughs> that's all you need to do. And obviously you wouldn't ask that question if you didn't have an answer yourself. You know what? I, I was thinking about it while you were saying it and I don't I, – okay, so the easy answer for me is Angel just right. because that's I – mean, obviously that's mm-hmm. who I would – eventually at some point I'm going to be like – Right. And then Angel comes in and messes it all up. <laughs> to me, that would be, um, I don't want to say cheating, but that would be my the thing in my back pocket. That, that would be your natural path. Yeah. I get like 30 minutes of an episode. And I'm like, oh my God, I just need another 14 minutes. <laughs> all right. At this point, Angel. And then I once I do that, it goes from a 30-minute episode to a two-parter. Right. That I then have to cut down. <laughs> so I guess my answer to it is not so much... Uh, because I'd want to see Angel in it, but because it would be easier to write it. It would fit my process more mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. just throw Angel. But you know what? I feel like there's an answer that I wish I had that would be better. Like, I like the Lieutenant Deal one. That's mm-hmm. a good one. There's there's only so many recurring characters that aren't, right. like, the core cast. I mean, so are you trying to tell me that you wouldn't uh, use your deep affinity for Rocky as a guiding guiding light? It would be great. It would be... Um, I can't think of his name right now. He's just a uniform cop that shows up every so often. Oh, oh, uh, uh, Billings. Billings, yes. Like, Billings would be a good one. Uh, if I were to do a Rocky one, I would also make sure that Rocky's plumber bud, uh... LJ. LJ. It's so funny because I kept thinking (laughs) J-Lo. If I were to do Rocky, I would also make sure that LJ was in each episode, too. And it would just be like a little bit of the Rocky and LJ show mm-hmm. just somewhere in the background. We we kind of get this in this episode, but uh, Rocky episodes, but everyone is one of his old buddies. So right. like T.T. Flowers is another one. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all something from Rocky's past coming back to, to get him. And this is so this is season two, mm-hmm. which uh, doesn't start off with. But in the begin near the beginning, they have the, the gear jammers which mm-hmm. is a big Rocky, like where we learn more and more about Rocky. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because like Rocky has an iconic feel to him. Uh, but uh, I feel like all of these episodes have like a little thing in it that like wants you to know that Rocky isn't, wasn't always Rocky or isn't the Rocky that, that Jim sees all the time, you know, yeah, or something. Yeah. I think that's true. So, yeah. It's good. It's good to have Rocky as as one of the ones that show up in in all the ones you've written. Uh, so I think it's appropriate that we've been talking about something other than uh, than the writer because I could not find anything about this guy on the internet. <laughs> um, I mean, other than his credits, which include the fact that he he uh, co wrote uh, the script for Cujo, the Stephen mm. King adaptation. Um, he did some a, a bunch of other TV. I feel like this might have come up the last time we talked about him, which he created a show called Kaz, which the logline is the cases of former car thief turned criminal attorney, Martin Kaz Kaczynski. 
And we were like, we would watch that. I'm pretty sure neither of us has watched that. However, there is something about him in 30 Years of the Rockford Files. Oh, So I figured good. I'd throw that out, as this is also closing uh, closing our, our Don Carlos Dunaway cycle, <laughs> as this is the last of his that we'll see. Thank you for your service. I'm reading from the book now. This episode was written by Don Carlos Dunaway, who was one of the writers Roy Huggins cited as an example of the double-edged sword television producers often face when it comes to finding new talent. Dunaway was in Rome on a film working as an assistant director when Huggins came across a screenplay he'd written, but which had never been produced. Uh, I read it, told Don he was talented, and brought him here to Universal from Rome, Huggins told Daily Variety in 1975. I was only able to hold on to him for six months because he was snatched up and is now doing screenplays for Paramount and 20th Century Fox. He's getting $75,000 from 20th. How can you work for me? There's an irony that when you do find talent, you frequently lose it. I don't remember who it was, but there's a television show, uh, kind of a short-lived, maybe two seasons long, called Party Down. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a comedy about uh, caterers in the Hollywood area, I think, or somewhere like that. But it was good. Uh, But it was filled with a cast of people that have... Like a lot of them have gone on to like pretty pretty big careers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it like I remember uh, one of the creators just sort of I don't know complaining about that, but making the same statement like yeah you find good people and then they find better jobs, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what you do. Yeah, I mean I'm not sure I would have to I don't really know how to read the the um the credits to figure out what he could have been working on for 20th Century Fox at the time. Yeah. Maybe that was Kaz. Oh, Kaz. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about the actual production, you know, the actual film industry. But one thing I feel like is fairly well known is that you can do lots of work that never sees the light of day. So, yeah, who knows? That was a lot of preamble to get to what I think is a very straightforward preview montage. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. We uh, we see that it's got, we're going to have a Rocky Bud uh, show up. Uh, and you can see, I can't, my notes say you can clearly see that's going to put pressure on Jim. I don't remember the exact cut of what was going on in the montage, but it, they were going to telegraph that, uh, a, a little bit. We do get to see a nice squealy U-turn. Yes. Like a yep. nice, yeah, like, oh yeah. Not a J-turn, but clearly some car action. Yeah. Uh, deal. Deal is in there. Mm-hmm. I have deal with an exclamation point. I do too. I spell deal differently than they do in the uh, in the in the on IMDb. Yeah, I spell it with an H, but it's actually yeah, just D I E L. That's weird. I is it often spelled with an H, and we're just this episode happened to be different? Nope. Oh, yes. Interesting. He's Alex Deal, mm-hmm. but for the Battle of Canuga Park, which we haven't done, he's Lieutenant Thomas Deal with an H. Mm, yeah. What is going on? Are there multiple deals? He's Alex. Yeah, he's Alex Steele in the movie. Huh. Interesting. So, I, yeah, so I suppose the Thomas Deal credit was a one-off. Yeah, it's so funny that they would change his name in 77. So he'd already had, like, six episodes under his belt. Like, at the very least, you would think he would be like, hey, I think my character had a different name last time I was on this show. <laughs> on the other hand, you know... When you're working in TV, I'm sure a lot of the time you just don't even notice that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's a little weird thing we've just discovered. Not probably not the first people in the world to discover it, but <laughs> well, welcome to the deal cast. The deal cast. What's the deal? But but we spell it differently depending on which episode we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then the final bit is just some good mobster threats uh, with a, a nice uh, Rockford retort of stuff it. Hello, listeners. This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the financial support from patrons really means a lot to us. And we extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time, we say thank you to... Chuck from WhatYou'reReading.com, Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color at FruitLoopsPod.com, Shane Liebling, check out his dice rolling app Roll For Your Party at RollForYour.Party, because you know you're playing role-playing games online, Jay Adon and his amazing miniature painting skills over at JayAdon.com, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, Dave Otterson, and Kip Hawley. And finally, an extra special thank you to our detective patrons for their very generous support. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter. Brian Pereira, at Thermoware. Bill Anderson, at BillAnd88. And of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where Epi and I casually chat about the media we're enjoying and all the other things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Well, we start this episode at a house with a, a nice discovery shot where we're looking at the house and then the camera pans down so we clearly see that there are two goons in a car across the street keeping an eye on said house. Uh, my notes here is that we have a cigar goon with mustache and a sideburns goon. That's, yeah, good distinctions. At first I thought the cigar goon was going to be like the boss. Right. Because he's kind of in charge, but it turns out that there's a boss that he's, you know, he's the sub boss. Yeah. But yeah, he's the one with the cigar and the mustache. Um, They're watching a older guy in a hat who is very Rocky-ish, though clearly not Rocky, getting into a big wood-paneled station wagon. Yes. And then they uh, follow him as he as he heads out, obviously, to Jim's trailer, as we cut to Jim's trailer, where Rocky is pacing back and forth. So I fell for it. I don't think it, I don't think it's anything to fall for. But like my notes are all like goons watching Rocky coming out of a house that's not Rocky's house. Rocky getting into a Woody that's which he doesn't he doesn't own that he has a, and, and then I was like oh that's just a that's just a guy in a hat <laughs> that's just an old guy in a hat <laughs> he he just looks like someone who would be friends with Rocky yeah yeah but I I definitely thought I was thinking that this is what's going on with Rocky here and uh, <laughs> it, it is not Rocky it is in fact uh, Pete is this guy's yes. name uh, Pete Praley so. Uh, Rocky is is pacing back and forth. He, they're waiting for for Pete. He sounded scared on the phone. Um, so clearly, he's there's something troubling him, which is unusual because uh, they go way back. And yeah. Rocky is telling stories about how he and Pete cleaned out a bar when they were young. There were at least <laughs> twenty guys. And Jim, who's reading a newspaper, is uh, isn't quite sure about that. And I think Rocky's like. There were at least 10 of them. Yeah. Pete then arrives. Um, we clearly see that he and Rocky are friends. 
like with so many of Rocky's friends, they all know Jim from when Jim was like a kid, but they have not actually seen him as an adult. So yeah. there's uh, always that little bit of like uh, reintroduction. But he is looking for help from Jim specifically because he remembers that Rocky told him he was in the PI business. Um, turns out that someone has kidnapped his granddaughter, Houston. Jim gets out his tape machine to record the rest of the story so that he has it all down on tape. Pete, uh, he says he can scrape the money together, but what he really wants is to get those guys. He wants to get Houston back. And then, and then as he says, lynch those guys from a tall tree. Yeah. Ugh. Yikes. Um, Jim, of course, says that his first step should be to call the cops, but mm-hmm. this guy is, is a cab. Yeah. Yes. I wouldn't let the cops in if they were certified, notarized, and dressed for choir practice. Oh, Pete, he's been in more jails than you have, Sonny, mostly for brawling and, and disorderly conduct. Yeah, well, I know a police detective. No cops! He's... The guy said no cops, and I'm saying no cops! This is, I, I mentioned that I've got a theory, and this is, um, I'm going to put this out there. I don't think they leaned into this, but I think this was a possible thing they could have leaned into, which is that uh, Pete here is... Uh, Rocky's angel. Uh, uh-huh. He doesn't have angels' mannerisms, but the stories of <laughs> their past. I think even Jim look like Jim pulls out the tape recorder when he starts talking, mm-hmm. which is not a thing he he's done. We haven't seen him do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is. Uh, I mean, it's a season two, so I can't say it's new behavior. But it's not like he usually records people when they're talking so to. So is Jim suspicious of this man? Is my question. Mm. I don't think so, just in the sense of uh, he doesn't take his money up front. <laughs> right. That's true. Yes. I think Pete may be somewhere in between Rocky's Angel and Rocky's uh, Gandhi. Yeah, that could be. like, part of it is that they had this, like, rough and tumble. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons he doesn't want the cops involved is because he's had run-ins with the law. Yes. He's gone to jail for, like, violent <laughs> activity yeah, yeah. before um but he also as we will learn later has made and lost multiple fortunes uh yeah really in this kind of in-between space in terms of his uh his past behavior um but this tape recorder so jim records the story and then he gives the recorder to pete and says you know tape when they call tape them on this in case i'm not there so that i can you know get all the information and I'm like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, all right, PI stuff. We got the yeah, tape recorder. Right? There's going to be a thing. As we will see, uh, it doesn't even get to that point, And there is no payoff for this tape recorder. It's just a fun piece of business. There is none. And there's even a moment later on when I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Now they're going to hit us with the tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, it's just, it's just business. As I mentioned, uh, uh, Pete asks Jim how much he charges, and he is pulling a wad of cash out of his pocket, and Jim's like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll settle up later. And just the body language, and I think there's a look where I feel like this is very clearly, I'm doing this as a favor to Rocky. Yeah. Whether he's not going to charge him, or whether he's like, we'll do, like, at a later date, I can tell him how much I want him to give me, as opposed to, I charge, you know, my 200 a day. Again, that is not followed up on, as we will see, but I was like, come on, Jim, just take the money. <laughs> yeah, just take it. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a, uh, it, it definitely feels like a, I'm doing Rocky a favor yeah. here, or, you know, like, maybe Jim does remember him or something, and it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, he doesn't want to take this guy's money. So, you know, they, they leave, and the goons who followed Pete 
then they've looked up Jim in the phone book and they see he's a PI. And so they, they know what they're dealing with as they lurk in the parking lot and then uh, follow everyone as they leave. They, they look him up, but they have his registration, which is a, another thing that doesn't really like they could look him up because they check his registration on the car. And I'm like, so they've got they're connected. Mm hmm. But then they're just looking up his name in the phone book. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they I, I guess they could have made a phone call from a payphone while they're all in there or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like this whole scene kind of encapsulates the this episode where it's like fun character stuff for sure. Lots of like details that I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm here. I have my my narrative continuity pants on. I'm. Ready yeah. to see where these things go. You're dropping me stuff that's going to pay off later. Um, and some things do and some things don't. So, like, the tape recorder never paid off. That doesn't go anywhere. The fact that Pete has a wad of cash, important. That matters yeah. later. So, like, the fact that that is in this scene matters. But other little details of equivalent importance and given equivalent screen time are just business. And I get into the place where I'm like really ready for stuff to come back up and then it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but then some stuff does. So I don't even know if it's, it's not bad, but it is right. giving it the close watch, I think is actually giving me more, a little more whiplash than if I was casually watching. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. This one, uh, benefits from, from just enjoying it. <laughs> that seemed like a really backhanded compliment. Uh, oh, the other thing I want to say is that w another read of Jim not taking his money. At some point, I got the impression that Jim thinks that a kidnapping has not occurred yet. Yeah. Because he asked, like, where does she live? Have you called yeah. her? Have you been out there? And yeah, he has some due diligence to do before he, like, quote, takes the case. Yeah, he might just be like, oh, no, she's home. You're fine. You're, you're getting shaken down for... Yeah. Yeah, under false pretenses or something. I think that's, yeah, that's totally true. Because Jim, his first move is to go check out her place. Yes, which leads to one of the weirdest twists in this whole story. <laughs> so he goes out to her place, which, first of all, I was like, we have definitely seen this house before. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure the uh, Rockford Files filming locations dot blogspot.com i'm sure will yes. we'll fill us in if we <laughs> choose to go take a look specifically i think it might be the same house that they used in dwarf with a helium hat the rockstar oh, episode yeah where that guy has his parents that that come back from their vacation because he needs to get the money and he has that weird bad relationship with his dad or whatever yeah i feel like when jim goes to talk to them they're in this house <laughs> I could definitely see that. That could be wrong, but that's just what I thought of as uh, watching it. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. What's important here is that the door has clearly been forced. It's damaged. There's like the jams all messed up. Um, there's splintered wood. And uh, Jim goes in to look around and it's been been tossed or there's been a struggle. There's uh, a broken vase and a broken lamp and a bunch of furniture is overturned. He looks around, kind of looks in each room. And then he leaves again with a concerned look on his face. And that's when our credits come up. Uh, very nicely placed, as I think I always, we always appreciate, with where's Houston? Question mark. Right over his face as he steps out the door. <laughs> Where indeed. There's this ominous thing where one of the goons in the cars was like, they were like, you know, who we sh should we follow? And he goes, Rockford will be taken care of. Yeah. 
And it seems that the way he will be taken care of is this set scene that just feels like a magic trick. Mm-hmm. So I think the read as I'm watching it was that that refers to the next scene. That could be. Yeah. I mean, I think you may be right once we find out all of the things later. It's just there's a certain amount of effort put into gaslighting Rockford. Right. But it it may not be for Rockford's benefit, but because of that line, it feels like it's for Rockford's yeah, benefit. Yeah, that's a little unclear at the end. So the, what happened later, we will find out. We're going to come back to this and all the damage will be gone and it'll be like nothing ever happened in this house. And it'll be specifically stated that it's impossible for someone to have repaired the damage in right. that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, we're going to take care, he'll be taken care of. Does that refer to the staging? Or does that refer to the next thing, which is Jim's just leaving, and then there's a car laying in wait, and then he gets yeah. boxed in by these two cars. One comes out of nowhere, and the other one we kind of saw on camera. All of our goons get out, the two we've already seen, and then two additional emergency backup goons. Um, there's a good bit here where the first one says, don't move, and then the main, the cigar chomping goon says get out of the car and jim's like won't you guys get it together yeah um <laughs> so good but they uh they get him out he he goes for a classic jim rockford sucker punch but unfortunately he's outnumbered he takes out one but the remaining three manage to grab his arms and yeah some some good gut punches this is one of the bigger beatdowns i've seen jim take on this show i i don't know there's just something about this one that was just like wow yeah like he (laughs) had no chance and the uh our our, i guess he doesn't have a cigar at this point mustache goon the main goon the guy in charge yeah he tells him to to forget it make it like it never was it don't exist and then they (laughs) leave jim clutching his stomach as they uh leave in their their goon cars Things ramp up dramatically as we follow Jim as he goes to Pete's. He's still clutching his stomach as he goes into the house. There's no answer at the door. And then we get extremely dramatic harmonica escalation as he moves through Pete's house, uh, almost mirroring how he peeked through Houston's house earlier. And then we see him see two feet sticking out from behind a chair and uh, he goes over and checks, and we see from his face that poor Pete is is no more. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So yeah, so we cut to the cops are on the scene, including Dennis, of course, um, mm-hmm. taking pictures and chatting, chatting, and you know, discussing <laughs> the scene. Uh, Rocky's there. And then uh, in this episode, Alex, <laughs> possibly yes. Thomas, Lieutenant Deal. Uh, is is in on the scene in person interrogating Jim about uh you know the circumstances and everything. So specifically, he wants to know where the money, where the money in the money clip Jim described was from, because this guy he lived on a fixed income, he didn't have yeah. any savings. Why would anyone try to get ransom out of him? He cashed a check recently, which is probably the source of that money, but they don't know where that came from. I still doesn't explain why somebody had hit him up for ransom. I thought he had money. If he could fool me, he could sure fool the kidnappers. Come on, Rockford, would you snatch somebody without making sure how much is in a kitty? No, I wouldn't. But then again, that's not my line of work. (laughs) This is interesting because Deal is, uh, unlike Chapman, and I don't know how intentional this 
distinction is. Uh, Deal definitely is antagonistic towards him, but the way he's talking to him, he's kind of taking Rockford in on it. Mm-hmm. Work with me here. Think through it with me. You know, like it's it's kind of interesting. I think for for those who you know are, are joining us recently or haven't heard these episodes before, so there's Lieutenant Deal is in these early seasons is the you know Becker's boss on the force and yeah uh, and has kind of this antagonistic relationship with Rockford, and then later Lieutenant Chapman kind of fills the same role. Yeah, they don't ever cross. I don't think there's any episodes where they're both in. And I assume that's just, you know, an actor thing over time of who is available and what they decide to do with the character. Um, But they aren't exactly the same. Yeah, they're not interchangeable. They're in the same dramatic space, but they're not. Yeah, they're not interchangeable characters. Deal always seems to care more about the case, and he doesn't really like Rockford. And if he has a chance, he'll, you know, none of these guys like PIs, right? They're police lieutenants. And private investigators stick in their craw because they just make their jobs harder and whatever. But Lieutenant Chapman seems to have a real personal dislike of Jim. Yeah. Right? Like, Chapman really is always looking for an angle to, like, get Jim, even if it is going to hurt pursuing the case. While Deal is like, all right, I guess you're involved again. Right. Tell me what you know. Let's figure this out. Now the path of least resistance for me, as we'll see in this episode is to take you in on this because you're right in front of me and you're an easy way to get closure on this case and I don't have any reason to go elsewhere right now. But it doesn't really seem as personal as it does with Chapman. I think one way to sort of illustrate this is I think the way that, uh, and this won't help people who are new to all this, but for those that have been listening or have been involved in the Rockford Files for a while, (laughs) I don't think the whole joke about Chapman really liking Lance White would land with Deal. Mm, yeah. Right? There's something personal about how Chapman dislikes Rockford that isn't there with Deal. Deal has like kind of a professional dislike for him. And I think we see in the movies later that Deal is more like, oh man, I'd really have to go back. In one of the movies, there's the scene where um, Deal is interrogating Jim about oh, yes. the murder of that other PI. Yeah. And he's like sends Dennis out of the room because Dennis is like too wound up. Yeah, and is giving Jim outs that Deal doesn't yeah. want him to take. But at the end of that scene, the takeaway really is that Deal is looking for what actually happened, right? Not to pin Rockford. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This this episode is really turning into the deal. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> what's the deal? This is really turning into a what's the deal episode. Well, in this scene, we also get Rocky explaining that. Uh, Pete thought of himself as a rich man, even when he didn't have money and he did have money on and off. He'd come up with some scheme, make a million bucks and then lose it all on the next thing that he came up with. Jim explains that he went to Houston's house and it was all tossed and everything. Uh, Deal has a uh, sardonic remark about whether he touched everything, messed up all the evidence. And Jim (laughs) retorts with like, you know, oh, I just hosed it all down real good or something like that. There's some good banter, but they're going to go check it out and... There's a there's a good little character beat at the end of this where Rocky wants to go with them. Jim tells him to stay. And then Dennis is like, you know, I'm going to go up there with those guys. Yeah. I'll call you and tell it how it all goes. You know, you you stay here. There's that element where Dennis and Rocky have a relationship as well. It's not just through Jim. Through Jim. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. As we, we pre, pre-mentioned, we get to, to the house and the door is 
in perfectly fine shape. Not all broken. <laughs> Everything looks fine inside the house, including the, the vase that was broken on the ground, the lamp that was broken. They are whole and in their normal places. This was two hours ago. They established the, the timeline. Yeah. Jim was there two hours ago. Then he went over to Pete's and deals like that's impossible. The paint on the door isn't even tacky. That's enamel. It takes two days to dry. <laughs> this is, I feel like this is a, a bit from a Columbo, this is Columbo style evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I, and again, I mean, not to be all what's the deal with everyone here, but like <laughs> this is another great thing that delivers differently from Deal than it does from Chapman. Uh, because this is, again, Deal is like, you know, you got to understand my point of view. You're lying. Right, right. Not not like, I gotcha, Rockford. <laughs> yeah, it's more like you're telling me this story and the evidence before my eyes contradicts it. Yeah. And then they end, end the scene with uh, Jim... All right, Deal, you're a genius. Where do we go from here? Like to take a crazy, haphazard guess? Jail, you think? Okay, why not? <laughs> so good. Uh, I love that. And then we go to the next morning down at the Hollywood station where Rocky has brought Jim's coat and meets Jim and Beth as Beth doing her 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 great lawyerly job has uh, gotten Jim out from uh, from the pokey. He passed a lie detector test about his story, which is the <laughs> only reason that he's uh, that they're letting him go. Uh, even though that's not admissible in court, it right. does make it shaky for them to hold him. However, and this is, again, the difference between Deal and Chapman, if Deal wanted to bring a case, the only real defense they have, based on the available evidence, is that Jim had no motive. Yeah. So he could decide to bring that case. He just hasn't yet. Well, you feel like Chapman would have been like, oh, no, I'm bringing that case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so just a little bit of Beth here just in this scene, but it's good as always. Uh, just wants Jim to behave, go home, <laughs> read a book, you're out of it. Mm-hmm. Jim thanks Beth, gives her uh, a peck on the cheek, which is another little nod towards Jim and Beth, their whole thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> as we as we like to say. And then Rocky uh, takes him home. But then Jim starts directing him uh, on turns. Rocky specifically says that Beth was great handling deal. Jimmy should have seen it. <laughs> as we know, Beth is one of the greatest lawyers of her generation. Yes. But Jim wants to go back to Houston's house even though he promised Beth, uh, he just did that so that she wouldn't worry. And uh, we get to another great Rocky Jim relationship exchange. What about me? I worry, too. I figure you're going to worry no matter what I do. <laughs> and then Rocky starts justifying to himself and also yeah. kind of capturing Jim's motivation. You're afraid if I do get to messing around, I'm going to end up in a bind myself. <laughs> Uh, Rocky, I just don't like to get flanked, that's all. When I do, I like to know why. <laughs> uh, you are doing it for me, ain't you, son? Shut up and turn left at the sick. But then he kind of smiles and it's like, oh, that is kind of why he's doing it. <laughs> so this this plays a little bit more into that, I, I'm going to call it a theme. Not that Peter is precisely Rocky's angel, but that, that we are seeing Rocky and Peter as older versions of Jim, one of his buddies. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, which is very different for Rocky. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyways, I, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that little bit. And like you said, it, it definitely feels like Rocky making up the justification. Mm -hmm. Trying to 
to reconcile what Jim's doing with Rocky's vision of what his youth was like. Well, Jim leaves leaves Rocky to watch outside while he pokes around Houston's house again. Um, He walks around. It's still in fine condition. Picks up a book off a table titled Cable Drilling Techniques. I wrote that down and r- rubbed my hands together. I'm like, now we're into some serious Rockford Files. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to do some oil drilling. <laughs> right. And again, I was like, oh, because like, we get a shot of like the cover. It's very clearly on yes. camera established. I'm like, oh, this is a clue. But it's not really a clue. It's just a, it's a very immediate foreshadow, I guess. It's an insight into a character. Sure. But even by season two, I think we have been primed to think this, this is it. It's a, it's an oil scam. Got sure. It. Yeah. Already clicked in my head, categorized it. Somebody is, uh, there's a, there's a oil field somewhere that people are arguing over. J- Jimmy Joe Meeker may make an appearance. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where's Houston? Oh, see, I get it. There's several meanings to this title, but nope, that's not where we're going. <laughs> Jim comes back out into the main room, and Houston herself has appeared. <laughs> yes. She is uh, a diminutive woman, I would say. Yeah. These shots are really interesting because, like, she's very small. She's played by uh, Lane Bradbury, who I feel like people might know. It's like a, like a Natural History Museum panorama of, like, early mammals and a t-rex right like (laughs) yeah she's maybe five feet tall and yeah james garner looks enormous (laughs) which works with her character right as we'll see um she's very tough uh that's her 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 thing i mean this is the great thing about this scene here is that he is physically threatening like he's not actually threatening her but like he's a strange man in her house right who is two to three times her size. Uh, and she is undeterred. She's right. not like recoiling from him. Yeah, exactly. She's like, what are you doing in my house? Yeah. And it's not even here. My house. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, before it can escalate, uh, Rocky comes in and Houston knows Rocky. This is some gear jammers here. This yeah. Is, this is the bit. Because it's like, oh, Rocky, like... Rocky's buddy's granddaughter knows Rocky on site. Right. But neither one of them would know Jim on site. Right. <laughs> so she's like, do you know this man? He's like, oh, yes, this is my yes. boy Jimmy. She's like, oh. <laughs> and they like shake hands. And she says, your daddy's told me all about you. You're an investment baker or something? <laughs> or something. Or something. He's like, what is an investment baker doing in my house? So they are bringing her the bad news. That her grandfather is dead and uh, Jim is trying to kind of build up to it. And then Rocky just spits it out and she, I would say, doesn't take it well. (laughs) Right. Immediately looks angry. Yeah. And then like turns and storms out of the room. Yeah. Uh, And there's just a little bit of business of like, should we follow her? No, leave her alone. I guess I could have done that better. There's no good way to tell someone that kind of news. Uh, And they postulate that maybe the kidnappers let her go once they found out he was dead. Yeah. I think maybe Rocky says that nothing in this scene gives any evidence to the, to the idea that she was kidnapped. Right. And they immediately are going to follow up and, specify that she was never kidnapped but there's that little moment where rocky's like trying to make it all make sense yeah so okay 
I feel I don't know if this is actually there or not. I don't know if I just read this into it, but like when they first start talking together and they're like it becomes obvious that they have to break the news to her. It it feels like Jim is looking to Rocky to break the news. Yeah. And then Rocky doesn't. So Jim starts and then Rocky jumps in and breaks the news. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things about this episode has started here, which is the arc of her dealing with the the death of her grandfather mm-hmm. and uh one of the reasons why i like it is that although her dealing with it is part of the story and in some cases the focus of the story another part of it is how other people deal with the fact that she has to deal with it right yeah this scene where she leaves the room and it's awkward and it's just jim and rocky sitting there discussing what they should have done is very real to me and it feels very genuine the only problem i have with all of this like i really enjoy this theme of it but the only problem i have with all of this is that uh it's all about her rocky has lost an old friend and we've done nothing Hmm. to deal with that like rocky doesn't he's still kind of like playing a game of being a pi and there's no indication that rocky has to go through any grief for this Hmm. and maybe that's just because he's old and his friends just keep dying on him anyways (laughs) Sure. I mean, but like Pete was murdered, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, so I, I don't want to say this is like a, a particularly bad thing about this episode, because I think uh, for the rest of it to work, they have to not deal with the fact that, like, like you said, like it's an old friend of Rocky's. He was murdered. And not only was he murdered, but now Rocky's son and Rocky's friend's granddaughter are probably in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. And so that should also be another thing that Rocky should be kind of freaking out about. Mm. What the stories, as it's presented to us, is interested in is more of uh, how she's dealing with it and and how that reflects with Rocky. There's maybe too much once you start to unpack this to actually put it all on screen. So you just choose what you, you, you have here. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that just because the focus on her does really like, that's the real emotional arc of the episode is, is Houston and her reactions and how she deals with stuff. And I honestly hadn't even realized that maybe Rocky could be in a different emotional space. Yeah. (laughs) Because we've seen him in other episodes be, be prickly, be angry, be snapping at Jim as a cover or as an outgrowth of his emotions about something. Yeah. And I think, like you say, yeah, this episode is not interested in that in particular, which is just a choice. But yeah, exactly. But now that you mention it, I'm kind of like, well, that's a missed opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because you could have him have those emotions in his acting yes without changing any of the lines or any of the plot yeah oh we're we're coming up on my either second or most favorite twist of this episode so let's let's go to this well yeah so we go from there to houston angrily uh serving butter in a butter dish to her dinner (laughs) guests and she's apparently made stew in the interim and she's ladling out stew for jim and rocky as they're all sitting around around her table so th- I mean, that's my favorite twist, is that <laughs> she has beef stew on deck. Yeah. And she hasn't even been home, as we learn. Yeah. She's been in Baja. So she's a geologist, and she's been working on this. And she works in oil fields, and she's been working on this deal with the Mexican government about this field in Baja. Yeah. And she was keeping it secret from her grandfather, because part of the deal... The deal. The deal, too much, deal. Too much deal, deal. <laughs> uh, what's the deal? Um. 
this was going to be a surprise for her grandfather because the whole kind of backstory here is that she went into this field because of him because he was into oil for, you know, some of his early fortune hunting or whatever. So she went into this field, got an education, yeah. is successful in what she does because of him. And so kind of to take care of him, now she has this big oil field um, deal that she's trying to make, but she's going to surprise him with it, which is why she didn't tell him she was going out of town. And in fact, no one knew she was going out of town, thus creating the space for this fake kidnapping. My Rockford Files compass is still pointing straight at, you know, oil fraud. Right. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, of course he doesn't have any money. Uh, and he's being shaken down because these other people know that he's coming into this oil field. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just don't know that he doesn't know it or whatever. Sure, like, yeah. like, I'm still laser focused on this because <laughs> of uh, how I've been trained by the Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we'll get to it when we get to it. But I'm, I'm so happy that it's... I'm, I'm so happy to have been fooled <laughs> into... Anyways, we'll, we'll get to it. You know, so we get some of the exposition and then... Y'all gonna eat your stew of what? Hey, look, Houston, if, if you want to let down a little, it's, it's okay. I mean... We can go outside and wait or leave or, you know, help or whatever. She clearly is holding a lot of emotion tightly in check, right? Yeah. We have another beat where we see that clearly no one is going to eat their stew. Yeah. It, this is, again, this is great. I Like I said, I like how, I mean, it is her process, but also how it focuses on what it's like to be around a process, right? Like, mm-hmm. Jim is like, I don't, I, we're willing to offer whatever you need to deal with this situation. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know instinctually what that is. And there's no reason why she should know what that is. Right. He's he's doing a thing that I feel like is a very core Jim Rockford thing. I don't want to be the one responsible for you doing something you don't want to do. Right. So, like, if my presence here is responsible for, like, you bottling things up, like, I can leave. Yeah. Uh, which is fairly, fairly emotionally aware, uh, I think. Sometimes yeah. that turns into weird places, but in this case, it, it feels about right. Um, but uh, we get a lot of unresolved bits, like uh, un- unresolved uh, moments with with her. And this is, you know, the second of them in two scenes, which I think is intentional. Yeah. Um, part of their conversation was about, well, we should go down and you should tell the cops that you weren't kidnapped and everything. <laughs> so we are moving on to them doing that when outside her house... A uh, oily guy, as I <laughs> note him, in a checked coat arrives. Um, he saw the news in the papers and came over to see how she's doing. This is Jerry Specht, who introduces himself as Houston's boyfriend, and then she says, friend. Yeah, oh, it's such a great beat. Yeah, my notes are like, this guy's mobbed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no way this <laughs> this guy is not involved in whatever is going on. Um but he offers to drive her downtown to talk to the cops. And she says, I'll go with him. You know, you guys don't need to stick with me. So she leaves with Jerry and Jim and Rocky uh, go back to the beach. There is a moment that we're given here where Jim and Rocky get in the car and she gets in the car with, with uh, Jay Speck, as I call him. Uh, and they drive off one direction and Jim and Rocky sit in the car and wait for them to turn around and head in the right direction. I hmm. think there's a thing 
going on in this episode where we get like a little bit of Jim's tradecraft and it like the, the tape recorder earlier um, that feels like it's more important than it is, but it's mm-hmm. just us learning that Jim he's, he's waiting to make sure they go in the right direction. Okay. They've gone in the right direction. We're good. Mm-hmm. Little bits that Jim does that are just like, he's a pro and he's just doing his professional thing. But because I, for some reason, I, I don't know if it's just my state of mind when I was watching it or whatever, but every, like you were saying before, every single time that happened, I was like, oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> like, oh no, it's just Jim's a little suspicious of this guy, which I was too. Like I wrote in my notes, I'm suspicious of this guy. Well, let's take a little break. Uh, we want to make sure that you know where you can follow all of our other projects and interests online. Epi, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can Google Epidia. I am the only one out there that I know of. Uh, you can go to digathousandholes.com. That's the number a thousand. Or you can go to worlds, plural, without master, singular.com and uh, find my work there. How about you, Nathan? My internet home for all things NDP is at ndpdesign.com. You can find all of the links and information for all of my various games, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game, my zines, and uh, podcast projects, of which perhaps there may be more than one. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at ndpaoletta. As always, if you want more information about the podcast, go to 200aday.fireside.fm. And now back to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. We go to the beach with this great yeah. wide shot of Rocky watching the waves, and he's like dead center alone on this beach. And then Jim comes off from off frame and 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 slowly walks up to join him. I think this might be the 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 one moment where literally Rocky is being centered. Yeah, because um, we are seeing him like. On the beach, alone, looking out over the waves, and this very, like... Contemplative. Yeah, he's not, like, grief-stricken, but he's clearly taking a little time. When we were talking earlier, I forgot about this scene. So there is something given to Rocky, but this does quickly turn into uh, plot-related stuff. Um, But but this this particular shot... With Enya's Orinoco flow playing in the background, and... Yeah, it's a little maudlin, maybe. No, like it- no, no, it's good. I was just no, I think you're right. I I had forgotten about the scene too, um, because my notes in it are nice beach scene. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, Jim is coming out to to fill him in. Um, everything about Houston's story checks out. You know, she was indeed gone, like all that stuff. So I think we're getting the strong signal of like whatever happened. It's not like she was lying about anything. Yeah. Um, and he says that he has a feeling that Houston doesn't need much taking care of. Um, I have a note here that that Rocky waxes patriarchal. Um, yes. Yeah. Who's going to take care of her? Yeah. Jim, as I said, feels like she doesn't need a lot of taking care of. The implication we get from the fiction is that she might have been doing a lot of the taking care of Pete. She She's definitely presented as a very capable person. Right. Uh, yeah. And w- what we're getting is is Rocky's look on it, which isn't necessarily. Yeah, we're we're getting Rocky's projection. Yeah. Um, the conversation turns to things just not making sense, and Jim has a another a, a good statement of purpose for how Jim thinks about cases. One thing I've learned is that uh, nothing makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, you get a set of circumstances that don't add up. It's usually because there's an important piece missing. Well, what do you figure the piece is here? Oh, logic tells me it's money. Yes. <laughs> uh, someone sure went to a lot of trouble to shake Pete down, but he didn't have anything to, to give. Um, so he posits that maybe he had something stashed somewhere. Uh, Rocky says he did make a fortune and lost it three or four times. <laughs> so he could easily have a couple hundred thousand dollars stashed somewhere secret. Especially if it was money he was hiding from the government. Oh, no. Pete, he wouldn't cheat on his taxes. Sure he would. <laughs> uh, you're right. I, I guess he would. <laughs> that rap scallion. So we cut from that conversation to Jim picking a lock uh, as they're breaking into Pete's house at night. Uh, and Rocky is with him. Rocky is worried about getting caught with all the burglar's tools. Jim says, like, what burglar's tools? <laughs> and he lists the lock picks, the crowbar, like, yeah, <laughs> all the stuff. But uh, Jim says that, don't worry, he'll take, you know, he'll handle things. Just stay out here and whistle if anyone comes along. Uh, this moves along quickly, um, but we have a great joke in the cut at the end of this scene where Rocky asks Jim what makes him think that they'll find the money when the killers didn't. And Jim right. says, we're smarter than they are. <laughs> Rocky says, oh. And then we cut to Rocky and Jim at a diner counter with pie and coffee. And Rocky saying, I don't know, Sonny. Maybe it just ain't there. <laughs> yeah. So this is, a, I guess, a, a bit of a little swerve for us watching. We're like, okay, Jim's figured it out. He like yeah. had money hidden someplace. And then turns out, nope. Nope. No money hidden anywhere. Uh they're at a late night diner counter of some kind. Um, Rocky asks for, uh, you know, to, to warm up his cup. And the the proprietor says, this one's on the house. It's the last cup he's ever going to serve because he's <laughs> selling the business and, and retiring to like a farm or something like that. A vineyard. Oh, a vineyard? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what he said. All his customers have moved away. And how's he supposed to run a business if he doesn't have any customers? And so they kind of have some small talk. And then Jim uh, leaves before Rocky has a chance to finish his pie. Yes. Because <laughs> he goes out on the street and he starts walking up and down the block looking at storefronts. And there's lots of sold signs in all these empty storefronts. And we see that Jim has a light bulb moment. And he's figured it out that Pete, he did have a fortune. This is the, in my notes, I'm like, oh, it's not oil, it's real estate. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess until Jim goes out, I hadn't put together that they were like in the neighborhood still. Yeah. But obviously that's the connection that he draws for us. Yeah, so that all the properties on this block have been sold to someone. So we cut to our uh, main goon and his driver watching Jim and Houston through binoculars as they're coming out to uh, Jim's car. She's carrying an overnight bag and uh, the goons follow them as they uh, as they, they drive off. We have a voiceover of Jim telling Houston he's going to need a stasher somewhere safe until this is all over. Yeah. Check her into a motel. She doesn't like the idea of hiding. But Jim says, you can't fight what you can't see, which is true. And also not quite sure what that means in this context. But OK, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're now in the car uh, post vo voiceover. And he is asking about whether Pete had gotten any offers for the house. So, yes, as you say, not oil, real estate. Um, he, he had gotten a couple over the last couple of months, but the first was just a few weeks ago. And it was for $20,000, which is more than the house was worth. Jim then sees that they've picked up a tail 
And so we get a, some some good gym tradecraft. There's the high-octane chases that we get in the Rockford Files, and then there are some cerebral chases that we get in the... Uh, and this is this might be one of my favorite cerebral <laughs> chases. There's just some really good stuff in this here. Mm-hmm. He, he tells Houston to crumple up the empty cigarette packet that's in the glove box and throw it out the window. And then they pull off the highway and pull into a Safeway parking lot. And so our goons are following them. They follow, they park, and we stay with the goons' perspective as they see Houston get out of the Firebird, go over to the cigarette machine, act like it ate her money, and then, like, kind of wave at Jim and, like, point at herself, like, I'm going inside. Yeah. And so they're watching all this, and the Cyburns goon is like, how do you know she's not going out the back? And the boss (laughs) says, because she threw out an empty pack before they stopped. You got to learn to keep your eyes open. (laughs) So they're drawing the picture for us watching, but it's also very funny that this whole thing relies on someone being smart enough to read the clue and not just believing what they see. Right. There is another bit of business where she comes out with like an employee or something. Mm-hmm. They do something with the machine, then they go back in together and Jim's acting like he's getting impatient. And then we wait, we wait, and then we cut to her getting into a cab in the loading dock behind <laughs> of the of the grocery store. We go back to the parking lot where Jim pulls out by himself and the the uh, cigar goon says, uh, uh, follow him, forget her, she's gone. Yeah. So he reads the situation as soon as the as it changes, and we get into a short but sweet little street chase. Lots of good, determined gym looks during this chase. <laughs> yes, very determined. Lots of good wide shots so we can see the cars really swerving around corners and stuff, which is yeah. another good, solid, early season, uh, I think, technique that they do. Again, we because they do all the practical driving, we really see the weight of the cars as they rock back and forth on their suspensions. And we really see how the Firebird is like better at cornering than a lot of these like big sedans that the goons drive and stuff like that. The real trick here is that Jim is taking them on a ride to a combination <laughs> police station and records yeah. like, facility. Yeah. Like you have. Yeah. It might be a narrative convenience there. I, I mean, I just really enjoy the fact that he's he's got them hooked and they're following him. And he just comes in so hot into that police station <laughs> and gets out of the car and just waves to them. Like, hey, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of uniformed officers as they're going to cars and stuff. And so he just like yeah. waves at them as he walks across the parking lot and our goons just back out and leave. <laughs> <laughs> The whole sequence was great. This the bit uh, about setting up the cigarette thing, uh, and she does a great job of just playing out the whole like trying to get the machine. Like we even get like the the goons like, "Come on, lady, it's only sixty cents." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like really good. Jim has thought through this plan. He's got he's got a way out of this. Down to he's going to take them to a police station. In fact, in my notes, I was like, is this the same place he just pulled into? The record mm-hmm. place? Or is it... And we just cut to a different municipal building. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really... I'd have to watch it again because we get establishing shots of the signage. And I feel yeah. like it was like police station with an arrow one way and like municipal records with an arrow the other way. Yeah. <laughs> I could be misremembering that, but... Um, no, I think you're right. I, there's definitely something there. Uh, but... The signs that are of the most important mm-hmm. are the ones of the rules in this record place. <laughs> Positively, no photographing. Yes. 
It's extremely good. We now get a Jim does some investigation scene uh, with a little fun yeah. uh, humor. He's not running a con, but... um, it, it's He's using some of his con techniques here, I think. Mm-hmm. The joke is, you're only supposed to be able to look at the records. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to take any information with you, which seems weird to me, but I don't know. Maybe that was a thing in the 70s. Uh, I suspect it's, it's the 1973 version of the paywall. Yeah, like if you want a copy, you need to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's looking at property deeds. And so he has the big book and he flips it open and he finds some stuff. And I was expecting, which has happened in other episodes, the classic, he makes a noise and under the cover of the noise tears the paper out of the right. record book. <laughs> but no, he just takes out his little notebook and is making notes. And I'm like, okay. And then this guy comes over and starts hassling him. You're not supposed to take notes. Yeah, I know. I know. But see, I can't remember all this without taking notes. But it's not allowed. Yeah, I know you didn't make the rule. I'm going to call the police. Well, I suppose you have to. Sorry, I'm going to miss them. I'm almost through here. Could you tell me where I could find the uh, corporate records, please? It's down the hall, the third door on the right. Third door to the right. Thank you. Everything he does, he agrees with this guy. Yes, yeah. Every step of the way, the guy's like, you're not supposed to take notes. He goes, yeah, I can't remember all this without taking notes. Yeah. Everything he says just tugs the rug out beneath this guy a little bit more each time. So the guy's <laughs> right, just he's like... like probably he's expecting to be argued with and Jim doesn't argue with him. He disagrees with him, but does the thing he's going to do anyway. Right. So good. But, uh, yeah. So he gets the information he's looking for. He calls Houston because he needs to get Jerry Speck's address. Every piece of property in Pete's neighborhood had been bought in the last few months, all by different entities, but most of them list Jerry as an officer. So Mm -hmm. they're all shells for whoever is doing this real estate thing. And so Jerry is clearly involved and probably knows who was pressuring Pete if he wasn't doing it himself, I think is implied. Um, so Jim goes to said address. Uh, it's an apartment in kind of a nice looking building. There's no answer to his knock. So he picks the lock and heads in and the lights are on. And I'm like, oh, that's bad. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a bad sign. Um, we have an ominous set of shots as Jim moves through the space and then goes into the bathroom, turns on the bathroom light. We see over Jim's shoulder reflected in the bathroom mirror, Jerry's like slumped posture with closed eyes in the bathtub. And we see from Jim's look on his face of like, Oh no, that Jerry (laughs) is definitely dead. Mm -hmm. Then sirens start and Jim alerts turns off the bathroom light with his elbow, which I think is a nice touch. Yeah. And then manages to uh, make his way out of the apartment um, and hide around the corner before the police are responding to obviously someone has called in something and uh, avoids the the cops. There's a bit of a meal made of this Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I remember like having that (laughs) in this household and probably many others refer refer to this as marking out. <laughs> I don't know if I actually talk to the screen or not, but it sometimes happens where I'm like, just get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> just go. Just go. Go. I mean, this definitely felt like one of those moments where Jim has been set up to take a fall yeah. for a murder or whatever. Uh, but in this case, he was able to evade the cops. So he is not taken in at this moment. But yeah, the plot thickens. 
Pete's dead. Jerry Specht is dead. We cut to Jim meeting up with Houston by the uh, pool at the motel that she's yeah. holed up in. And she's like, no one saw me because she's supposed to be staying out of sight, right? Yeah. She's like, no one saw me. I just needed to get some air. And he understands. And he is not there to to, to give her any grief. I just want to talk a, just a moment about the foley at this pool. Uh-huh. It's at night. It's dark. It's not lit. Uh, there might be some night swimming going on, but it's not like it's a, you know, a pool with lights inside it or something like that. We are, we are shown that there is no one else there. Yeah. Yeah. But there is so much splashing noise. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, are there fish in the pool? Is somebody going for a night swim? Or like, like it was a little, it was a little weird. It reminds me of earlier in this episode, when Jim first comes, mm. he comes upon the, the break-in at her house, there's dog barking. There's dog barking fully, yeah. Yeah, and so I think this is an ongoing theme with our experience of this episode, is that they're, for us, when they filmed this episode, they were like, 50 years from now, <laughs> there will be a podcast. We don't know what a podcast is yet, but there'll be a podcast that will need all of these red herrings. <laughs> Yeah. There's just all these things that I'm like, am I supposed to think that there's someone in the pool? I remember thinking with the dog barking of like, it's a lot of dark dog barking. Like, yeah. does that mean that someone's coming up to the house? Because it happens again later. And I'm like, yeah, is Jim going to notice that someone is coming to the house because he hears the dog barking outside? But no, it's just atmosphere. Yeah. And same here. It's like, no, the water's just atmosphere. They're at a pool. There's water. The thing it reminds me of, which it absolutely could not be, is uh, modern video games, right? If we were playing the Jim Rockford Files video game, Mm -hmm. and we came upon that, and the dog barking, just part of the background noise, it would be on a loop, and it would occasionally come back again Mm -hmm. in the background noise, or the splashing. Mm -hmm. Like, we're near a pool, and the way the audio tells us that is it's splashing. It doesn't matter that it's nighttime and nobody's actually in the pool splashing mm-hmm. that's just the sound pools make when you're near them in this video game or whatever anyways that along with the tape recorder along with the like uh, there's another bit uh, the book the the cable drilling book and just there's all these things that we're like is this a clue and it's no it's just, it's just a detail we were you're just getting details that's all the scene is really the with or without the splashing uh the scene is really the the, the the emotional core of this episode uh as expressed through through Houston's character um the the dialogue's good this is in the the grand tradition of Jim being supportive of someone going through a rough time but also kind of pushing them to accept something that maybe they don't want to like kind yeah. of a tough love but he's not being mean uh he's he's like you need to understand this about what's going on right now or else you're never going to be able to like accept it or move on or whatever right yeah so it kind of reminds me a little bit of like how he is with uh 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 forget the character's name but the the countess and the countess and yeah the woman in quickie nirvana like this is this is a thing he does uh almost always with women yeah uh because that's how it is cast and written um he asks her if she always walks away from things she doesn't want to face I never walked away from anything in my life. What do you want from me anyway? Oh, a little emotion. I just like you better if you stopped acting like a gunslinger in a B-Western. 
There's nothing wrong with letting some emotion show, you know. What'd your grandfather do when your dad died? Well, he didn't cry. Men don't cry. <laughs> oh, sure they do. Oh, I've seen them ball like babies. I've uh, done it a couple of times myself. Mm-hmm. The little core here is uh, he had a son and her grandfather, Pete. He had a son and he wanted a grandson. And then Jim replies with, well, you, you did the best you could. So we, we get that, that picture of Houston and her grandfather kind of against the world. Always, She's always trying to live up to some expectation that if he didn't actually have, she thought he had. Yeah. Of how she should behave in a world where if he had had his way, she would be a boy and she wasn't. Yeah. And I feel like that's a not a position I've been in myself obviously, but that is a very understandable set of emotions, I think. This is all in advance of Jim telling her that Jerry's dead. Um, Mm -hmm. And she has a quick moment where she, like, kind of sits down and reacts and has kind of a little rawness and then kind of recovers and she asks why. Uh, Because from her perspective, he's, you know, he's always been, like, nice to her. He's never Mm -hmm. done anything. What could he possibly have done that would necessitate him being killed? But Jim thinks that Jerry is the one who killed her grandfather, that he's involved in this real estate deal. Maybe he tried to double cross someone else in the outfit or take a bigger piece of the pie and pressure Jerry as part of that. And he got killed for his trouble. And then we move back into the plot with uh, Jim says this all is about the title for the house. So let's open negotiations for it and like flush out whoever's behind this. Yeah. But in a very, in a very helpful moment of uh, convenience, Houston actually owns the title because Pete sold it to her for a dollar for tax purposes. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't have to find the title. She actually has it. And so they're going to set it up so that it requires both of their signatures to release. And so that is, you know, the mechanism by which they will flush out whoever is behind all this. Um, but yeah, so we, 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 we get back into our, our plot quickly from here, but, uh, but yeah, this is really all centered on Houston and getting that more understanding about why she is the way she is. And then seeing how she has another moment of taking an emotional blow and then immediately kind of pushing it away and moving on to the next thing. And immediately serving beef stew. Right. Right. Yeah. I th- there's a bit here where his, delivery you know she's like why he never hurt anyone and jim is just like i think he may have killed your grandfather like just straight up says it and i think that's informed by what he saw when rocky delivered Mm. the news before where he's like maybe the best move here is just to get that information out yeah i don't i don't need to i don't need to downplay this yeah so she is adding a clause to the title to the effect that <laughs> they both need to sign it over and also that <laughs> Jim gets 10% of any sale price over $20,000. <laughs> I made a note of that too. I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Well, he calls one of the companies associated with it. He says it doesn't matter which one because they're all shells of the same people saying, you know, I have the title. I'm willing to open in negotiations I'll be at home at this time. Um, in another one of those details where I'm like, hmm, this could go somewhere, but then it doesn't. Mm. She reads out the clause yeah. that she added, and Jim goes like, that's a good job for a geologist, because it's all very in legalese. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so maybe she's written it in such a way, like, because now he's getting 10% of 
Right. The sale price, if it's over $20,000, maybe she's written in something where when everything finally resolves, she's made it such that he doesn't actually get that because of the way she's written the legal contract. You know, like... How does Jim not get his money? Right, right, right. Since he called this out, this clearly is going to be important later. It is not important later. It's just another one of those details. And of course she would know how to write this. Like, if she's a geologist in the oil industry. Right. And she's been doing all this work on her own. Like, Yeah. I mean, he's complimenting her, but it is a bit of a... Yeah, uh, a pa- uh, patronizing compliment. But then we do have another emo- important little beat here where he leaves and we stay with her. Once he's gone, she puts her head down in her hands and we see that yeah. she's like letting herself actually react to everything that's going on. But then we cut away from that again. So another unresolved moment. At Jim's trailer, he gets the gun out of his cookie jar. Yeah. Like, yeah, getting his gun out of the cookie jar. Then there's a knock at the door. He opens the door. The goons come in, immediately frisk him, take his gun, <laughs> and then they go for a ride. So good. It's good. Um, they take Jim to a nicely appointed rich person's house, obviously, where he's brought in to meet the actual boss. So again, I thought that he was going to end up talking to the cigar goon, because I'm like, that guy's obviously in charge. Yeah. But no, the cigar goon takes him in to talk to the real boss, who is a rich guy, of course named Charles Blackhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, no small talk. They want to get right to business. Jim is negotiating on behalf of Houston. If they can work it out, they will go and get her signature in order to turn over this title. The offer is $20,000. But Jim says, no, no, this house is worth at least $100,000. What makes him think he'll spend that much? Jim posits that he has plans for this block, and without that land, it all stays on the drawing board. Yeah. Um... Blackhorn increases his offer to $20,000, plus your good health. 100000 Take it or leave it. Twenty. Don't make me resort to primitive methods of persuasion. I have staff members who are literally overqualified in that area. Those are the ones you turn loose on Jerry Speck? 20000 Stuff it. There's a beat, and then Blackhorn finally agrees. Will you take a check? Of course. You'll have to make it a personal one. We'll set it so the deed is final when the check clears. Do you have to do it that way? I've agreed to all your other terms. You have my word. <laughs> You're not a man who inspires confidence, Mr. Blackhorn. There's a lot of great back and forth here. This is good. Good banter. Good, yeah, good gym negotiating stuff. Something I appreciate. This actor, like, he's one of those that you, I knew him from somewhere. Uh, he's been in a lot of things. Robert Mandon. Yeah, there is something very specific that I know him from, but I don't, I couldn't tell you. Was it the TV movie Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, A Legacy of Fear? Uh, <laughs> from 1996? Yeah, it was probably that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has been in a ton of stuff, but I have seen very few of these shows. And this is his only Rockford Files appearance. Yeah, that was the thing I was trying to figure out is like, I feel like what I'm remembering him from is like an 80s sitcom or something like that mm-hmm. I, he was he was in a ton of things yeah. i mean he was in a couple soap operas too so yeah but the thing that i really wanted to point out is how uh his office building is in the matrix oh yeah <laughs> if you, when you look behind him the cityscape is just all green it just looks like the matrix and he's one of those again one one of those uh class of rockford files 
like source villains, like the main bad guy who just shows up at the end of the episode to be like, I was the one who behind it the whole time. And yeah. then, <laughs> you know, and then, and then justice is served. We do see the, the blue goon car, uh, follow them at a distance as they go to said motel to, um, sign over the, uh, the deed as experienced Rockford viewers. This can't be Jim's actual plan. Right. This is all just to get him out into the open. Um, Jim, uh, goes into the motel, gets Houston. They get into the car to sign the check. He's like, all right, you can. In fact, he says, okay, you can sign the check now. <laughs> That's when his goons have gotten out of their car that they were following him. They're all surrounding the car. Our principals are all in. Mm-hmm. Blackhorn's line is, you didn't really expect me to sign a check for $100,000, did you? And then we hear police sirens and then cop cars show up and Jim's uh, retort no, Mr. Blackhorn, I didn't really expect you to. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's all smiles as the cops arrest our goons. And as I said, justice is presumably served. We then get into our final scene to wrap everything up uh, to our satisfaction. Another dinner at Houston's house um, where she is serving pie to Jim and Rocky. Uh, she explains that she called the cops and said and reported a attempted kidnapping when she saw their car pull up. And that's how the timing worked out. That's another great detail because it's not Jim calling Becker and telling Becker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because probably Becker is getting sick of that stuff. Right. <laughs> well, and probably, yeah, deal wouldn't approve it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have the, well, I don't quite understand prompts from Rocky to get the rest of our story. So Jerry was part of this whole scheme from the beginning. Uh, when Pete wouldn't sell, then they hatched this plan, I guess. This is a little unclear still to me. But the point is, when Houston left town, mm-hmm. he knew it because they had, you know, they were friends and had dated or whatever. So he, when Houston said, no one knew I left town, Jerry did know that she she left town. Yeah. So he measured her door and had a new door made so that they could do the switch yeah. to fake the kidnapping. And he gave her that vase and that lamp in the first place. So he probably bought duplicates and had duplicates. So it's like, how long was this that, plan? That was my, my note was, this was a long con. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess at the least, headcanon wise, he knew where he could buy them again because he'd bought them. So he yeah. knew where he could get replacements. Uh, I mean, if he knows that she's out of town often, sure, he could be like, okay, when she's out of town, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stage a kidnapping that would pressure him into accepting the the purchase of the real estate, so he would have the money to pay. Oh, okay. For, you know what I mean? Like that. That seems to be the plan. Okay. Yeah, because that mechanism is never explained. They just say like Jerry wanted a bigger chunk of. So Blackhorn had a multi million. Mm-hmm. dollar development plan for that area and through all these subsidiaries was buying up all the real estate pete wouldn't sell jerry was involved with the plan and he wanted a bigger chunk of it and yeah. so i guess his offer was like i'll get the last piece of real estate and then i get a bigger chunk of the deal or whatever but then he bungled the job and accidentally killed pete in so doing right drawing attention to yeah Right. And then made it look, this was a detail, like made it look like a robbery because like his, his money clip was gone and stuff. But like, so like the cops bought it, Blackhorn didn't buy it. And so 
Blackhorn's goons killed Pete. Killed Jared. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, killed Jared. J-Spec. Killed J-Spec. So that he wouldn't be a liability, I guess? Yeah. Um, was he, like, sign over the deed and that will count? Like, that will be the money? What you're saying makes more sense. Like, yeah, you need $20,000 now. I'm offering you $20,000 for your property. He signs yeah. up the deed, gets the money, buys... Yeah, the freedom. Yeah, I mean, it could be that even the whole uh, kidnapping scheme might have been, like, Jerry's way of getting the $20,000, right? Because right. the guy was going to spend $20,000 to buy uh, Pete's house, and uh, Pete wasn't going to sell. So Jerry does this whole scheme uh, in which he can force Pete to sell because Pete needs the money, but then also Jerry can get that $20,000, right? Like he gets both ends. He gets $20,000 yeah. for the kidnapping. And then he also yeah. gets the deed. Yeah. Which in the end wouldn't have worked anyway, because, because Pete had sold the deed to Houston. Yeah. But nobody exactly. knew that, which in its own way is kind of like, that could have been a fun plot. Right. If they don't kill Pete and he's like, well, you have Houston and she has the deed. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I can't sell it to you. Right. But they don't right. have Houston because they didn't actually kidnap her. Right. But that's a different, that's a different episode. Yeah. The point of it is. All that grief for money. You know, granddad didn't care much for money. Oh, he liked making it and he liked spending it, but he didn't really care about it. He's a good man. Finest I ever knew. Houston offers Rocky some more sweet potato pie, but then before giving it to him, she puts down her uh, uh, utensils and just walks out of the kitchen. Yeah, this is the final bit. So Rocky's like, what did I say? <laughs> and Jim's like, just hang out. Yeah. <laughs> Jim gives her a beat and then follows, and we see from, you know, we follow him to see through the crack in a crack of a, of a door. Everything's finally overcome her. She's on her bed, sobbing into her hands. And he has a very sympathetic look on his face as he quietly closes the door and leaves her to her thing. And we fade out. We see him do that, fade out over seeing Jim as we hear Houston's sobs as all of the accumulated emotion she finally allows herself to to feel. A, a rare melancholy ending mm -hmm. to a Rockford Files episode. And that's where we find Houston. Yeah, it reminded me of, just because one of the few melancholy endings of um, Beating Frenzy, where Charlie oh, yeah. uh, is going to have all his all of the money taken by the IRS or whatever. Yeah. And we end with him, like, screaming, like, on the dock or something. Or <laughs> the melancholy endings are, are, are memorable. My overall impression of the episode well i mean we said this going into it this is this is an episode that you kind of want to let it wash over you mm -hmm. lots of wonderful juicy moments good interaction with the characters that wonderful cerebral chase um but if you think too hard about it while you're watching it you might fall into the trap that we fell into you just get confused by what's happening and and follow the wrong leads and I, I wonder how much we've we've poisoned ourselves right <laughs> with our with our close watches of the of the show because like never watch a show like you have a podcast to record. <laughs> right. At what point have we tilted over from like 
actively watching in order to pick up on like the nuances and appreciate the details over to expecting that every single detail is going to be a nuance when it's not necessary. Like, and it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Like the show doesn't have to be a precision machine. Right. That's not the contract. That's not the contract. And in fact, in an episode like this, it may not be the episode's fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that we're like this. Yes. <laughs> This is the way we're broken. Yeah. The memorable part of the episode to me is the Houston character. I think I said, possibly before we started recording, it feels a little bit like this is two episodes that got jammed together in mm -hmm. a way. Like there's some elements that I feel like could have been more fully explored with a different story. Like the the whole, uh, as you say, gaslighting of Rockford with the fake. Yeah, it's elaborate. Super elaborate. Doesn't really seem to have much of a payoff. And in the end, isn't actually that important other than giving us a good deal moment. So, you know, I guess that's nothing to complain about. Yeah. Part of it is that, you know, we're watching a show called The Rockford Files. So I'm thinking this was done to frame Rockford. Right, exactly. But it's not. It's done to convince... The cops or whoever. Yeah, that, that she's been kidnapped. Yeah. And in fact... Those goons, the, the the ones that are like, he's being taken care Like, it is entirely possible that only Jerry knows about the faking of the house. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, that that's all he's doing. So when the goons are like, don't worry about Rockford, he's going to be taken care of or whatever. That's them talking about, oh, stop him and just beat him up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just the thing where it's like, part of the mystery isn't known. <laughs> I guess that's how mysteries work. It worked like a mystery. Well, that's the thing, though. Like, there's that mystery. And that's a big mystery. But that mm -hmm. mystery is completely immaterial to yeah. the rest of the episode. Like, it feels like here's a cool set piece that I want to put in something. But the rest of the something didn't really need that set piece. So it feels a little weird. Like, you kind of completely forgot about it by the time the end of the episode rolled around. It's, it's like somebody repainted their front door in enamel paint and they thought... This is a day later and it's still tacky. Hmm, that's a clue. Maybe I could put that in. Right. <laughs> a Rockford Files or a Columbo or a Mannix. Yeah, absolutely. But it was a fun episode. Like like I said, it... It, it is, yeah. It's, it's probably more fun to just put on than to... Um, yeah. <laughs> to do what we've, what we've done. Uh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention, which is about um, Lane Bradbury, who plays Houston, checking out her thing, as, as I like to do. Um, so first of all, she was married to Lou Antonio, who we have talked about before because he has directed some Rockford Files episodes. I believe mm. he directed the last one we recorded, uh, the one with um, Gabby, even though he's not called Gabby. In that oh, yeah, episode. yeah. We always go, oh, that guy, because his picture on IMDb is the half and half black and white oh, alien because yeah, yeah. he he's also an actor and he played one of those. Anyway, so that was just like, oh, there's a fun little little trivia but yeah. also more relevant to this so she wrote and was in a 2010 documentary called from the midst of pain so it's a documentary which explores the healing effects of creativity within the lives of abused women and at-risk teens oh, wow. and the description talks about how she was uh, abused by her mother as a as a child oh, wow. um and getting into acting was like a therapeutic course for her life. Mm -hmm. And so this um, documentary is intercutting, I guess, those experiences with the, the subjects of the documentary of people who are also experiencing abuse and, and using creative pursuits to, to kind of um, 
get through it. This came out in 2010. I haven't seen it, obviously. I'm just going off of the um, IMDb description stuff. But this seems relevant to me just because her portrayal of this character as someone who's so actively controlling her emotions Mm -hmm. and how that came across as very memorable and, and specific to me. Yeah. I feel like there may be a through line to the, her personal experience of how she was bringing that to the screen in this instance. It kind of seems to, to, to make sense to me. So shout out to, to uh, Lane Bradbury and uh, her turning her experiences into something uh, better. I, I, I hope. Yeah. Not to be a downer, just. Uh... Yeah. We could end it on the same kind of downer. We, the episode ended. Mm. To be clear, her her character here isn't really a doubt. Like her character here isn't like isn't bringing those experiences to the role necessarily. It's more about the like. I mean, it's about grief. Yeah, and like the episode is not really a sad episode, except at the end. But it's not really. It's not sad. It is melancholy. Yeah, which is nice because oftentimes, like we get used to murder because that is the medium through which right. these shows are. Like Rockford Files doesn't always have a murder. But they happen often enough, and we don't get the real stories behind murders. Right, right, which yeah. Which is a lot of sadness, right? Like, and this is this is a, uh, I think a pretty good good shot at that. And like, these shows often make it easy for you to just say, "Oh, oh, that guy got murdered." Okay, so who's responsible for that? What what mechanism does that yeah trigger in the narrative? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it in that way it's a very interesting episode and, mm-hmm. and worth looking into. I'd say yeah, it is more successful on the character emotional level than on the I don't know the story itself is a little muddled and kind of yeah distracted from itself to me. But you know, again. A not super successful Rockford Files episode is still a perfectly fun watch. So yeah, it's good TV. <laughs> it's, it's still good TV, and the dialogue's good. The character stuff is all really good. You know, let it wash over you, and then maybe there's a little bit of a a little bit of like a huh at the end. We're like, huh, okay, yeah, that tugs at my heartstrings a little bit. <laughs> Perhaps with that, we have covered our uh, our thoughts on where's Houston. Thanks again for joining us on our exploration. Uh, we are swiftly coming to the end of season two. So, yeah. So for one of the very few times we can tell you which episode we will be doing next, uh, we'll be back next time with season two, episode 17, Joey Blue Eyes. This is the one with uh, with with James Luisi, not as Chapman. This is the one where he's the bad guy. Oh, 